Welcome to another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love, hosted by Richard Osler. My guest on today's podcast is my friend, my long-term friend. We've been friends for several years, Andy Proctor. Welcome to the podcast, Andy. Thanks so much, Richard, for having me. We're going to talk about Andy's story about his life goal to help people that feel like they are alone, not to feel that way, and know what to do when you do feel that way. Um, will you restate that goal, maybe, Andy, in your own words for our listeners? Absolutely. You know, I think a lot of people who um, are, well, a lot of people in general, but a lot of people specifically who are going through some sort of a faith crisis or transition often just feel so lonely. I know I did. Yeah, I want to help people to just know that they are not alone and um, share a little bit of my story to maybe help people to know that they, uh, first of all, aren't the only ones, and also uh, maybe some some tools to help them. So if you are feeling alone, if you're going through a faith crisis or faith transition within our church, um, if you want to help others that are going through things like that, Andy has great insights for you. Um, Andy, will you introduce um, sort of your education and professional background to our listeners? Absolutely. So I uh, have been studying kind of informally positive psychology for the last maybe six years. Um, I mean, I studied psychology in my undergrad as well, social psychology, um, uh, which has been even longer, but I um, am certified positive, positive psychology practitioner um, also a professional life coach and uh, TEDx speaker coach too. Um, and I just love helping people to, to find their purpose and to really share it um, out there with the world and to live their, their, their personal mission. I believe, I believe everybody has a life mission and I think it brings a lot of happiness to find that. Tell people at the beginning of the podcast, we'll do it at the end, how to find you. Uh, so you can just find me on my, uh, Instagram. If you're on Instagram, uh, more happy life is the, the handle. And then more happy life.co is my website. Um, you can find me there. You can also, if you listen to podcasts, obviously you listen to podcasts, you're listening right now. Uh, you can listen to my podcast called more happy life. That's great. Um, Andy, um, I, since you came home from your mission, Chile Santiago East Mission in 2005. Yeah, West Mission. Sorry, I got West I, Mission. I, I got, I'm pretty, it does say pretty, West on pretty my proud notes. of that. No, I, <laughs> and whenever I hear Chile Santiago, since I'm sort of an earthquake junkie, did you have any? Oh, you know, we didn't. Oh, yeah, we did. We did. We did. We had we had one big one when I was there. It wasn't long, but it was. It but was you a, felt it. Oh, yeah. I, I bonked my head. Bonked I, it woke head. me up. I don't want to hear anybody dying in earthquakes, but I'm fascinated with plate tectonics, but we will not have a podcast about plate tectonics today. Um, Andy, just by way of kind of an overview, Andy got home his mission from the Chile Santiago West mission in 2005. So that was 15 years ago. And then immediately spent a, a gr probably a decade or more um, writing books, um, creating blogs, um, developing a Facebook page with over 600,000 uh, members or um, followers, talking about, you know, his mission experience and what you do after your mission. 
and just sort of had this post storybook experience that um, just this great period of time in his life where he was helping so many people in our church. Um, and then you had some real curveballs that came your way. We're going to talk about those that generated a faith crisis, faith transition. Um, it hasn't led you out of the church. You're still, uh, you know, in the church, but, and I've gone through a mini faith crisis that I've been open about. And that's sort of leveled for me as a place in the church as a fully believing member. But in my experience, I'm actually glad I went through it, Andy, because it gave me a more insights and more empathy for people, really faithful people that go through difficult things. And you're willing to share some of that. Um, is that okay for an introduction, just an overview? Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. Let's, for this first segment, before we kind of get to curveballs that came your way, talk about some of the, talk about, and you're going to be too modest to do this in a way that it should be done, but talk about what you did after your mission. You know, I I was so proud of my mission. I I believed in Preach My Gospel, like, probably more than any other missionary alive. <laughs> It came out while I was on my mission. I was just like so obsessed with it. I thought it was amazing. I wanted to write a book afterwards that was basically like, um, like preach my gospel for returned missionaries. Um, I I wrote one of the chapters of that book um, that was ended up being about purpose and finding your purpose after the mission. In your mission, it's called live your mission uh, because I struggled so long, so so hard to find what was next? You know, I even wrote a blog post. It was a, it was an April fool's joke actually on my, on the LDS missionaries blog, uh, where we released it, um, on April fools. And it was this, we said, uh, it was like, um, you know, one of those joke blog posts where we, uh, uh, the, the title I think was, um, church announces, um, the, the uh, missionaries can return missionaries can unmarried return missionaries can serve second mission upon approval from bishop or something like that it was it was and it got it just went viral because so many people thought what is this real and um i think a big reason why is because um and i saw this in hundreds of comments from people was that they just hadn't really found a new purpose that was just as powerful as what they had on their mission. And I felt that so much. And so that's why I wrote the book, you know, live your mission. Uh, you have a mission, you know, and how, how do you find that? Um, there's a lot of tools of how to find that in the book. And, um, and so I think it's really important to do so, but that was one of the things that I did. Um, I loved doing what I like to call online missionary work. I was working a lot with a lot of different groups. Um, more good foundation, um, as well as uh, um, Clayton Christensen, the late Clayton Christensen's um, group uh, with Reed Davis and a lot of just amazing people trying to help spread the gospel on the internet, use the power of social media and the internet. And I, I was, I learned how to do SEO and all this stuff just so that I could, you know, do that. And it was really cool. So, um, so I also have a background in those things, digital marketing. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I felt so passionately about doing all that and helping. And I was, that was a huge part of my purpose. And actually, actually 
discovered my mission, my life mission, when I was sitting in an institute class, an institute of religion class at UVU. Um, I didn't go to UVU, but the institute's awesome there. And um, Karen Hepworth actually was my institute teacher. She probably didn't know who I am, but she was teaching about life purpose. And she said something around the effect of, you know, Russell M. Nelson um, said that his purpose in life was to save the life of the prophet. And then she asked the question, what is your purpose? And that just hit me so hard. And then she gave, she let us sit there for like 20 minutes and just write, thinking about that. And I, I remember feeling like I had this, almost like this download, you know, that came to me really clearly what my purpose in life was, which is to be a powerful voice for good inside and outside of the church to um, help other people to find their purpose and remember who they are and uh, to be fun and awesome, loving husband and father. It's kind of a threefold mission. And so everything I've done since then, that was in 2009 after I came home from Jerusalem. And I just um, checked it with that purpose. And it's been so helpful. To, to find that. And so this online missionary work stuff and all those things, it's, it's always been a part of my mission um, to, to do that, to be a powerful voice for good um, inside and outside of the church. And um, so I think uh, I continue to do that now. I'm really trying to do that with positive psychology now, um, both inside and outside of the church, to be a powerful voice for good, to help people. And I think specifically... Right now, um, when I was studying positive psychology through the certification program, I felt so strongly that I just needed to help people who are going through faith transitions like I have gone through to remember that despite the uncertainty, you can still build a really good life and, um, and, and tell yourself a, a really positive story inside your own mind. Um, cause you can, you can either say, you know, um, I, I, you know, I, I have a good life, but gosh, it's so hard to deal with this uncertainty. Or you can say it's really hard to deal with this uncertainty, but gosh, I have a good life. You know, it's same statement, totally different story. And I think, um, I just, I, so I, so, so I created some resources for, for people who are struggling with faith transition, using positive psychology, research-backed principles to help you to build that good life, you know, um, regardless of, of what you're going through, of, of not knowing. Because it's hard. Sometimes you, you, you may never know. And it's really hard to get to that point of admitting that sometimes. Really hard. But yeah, talk about um, some of the. You've talked about the book called "Live Your Mission." Talk about some of the blogs, the names of the blogs, just so our list. Some of our listeners are going to be familiar with those, Andy. Yeah, so LDSmissionaries.com was kind of a the, the big one. Had a big Facebook page. Um, if you're L, if if you are a Latter Day Saint, 
a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, you probably like it on Facebook, <laughs> even if you don't know it. Um, uh, maybe you don't. I don't know. Um, and then uh, the returned missionary was the one that I, I built myself as well. I guess I built the other missionaries too, but kind of partnered up on that one um, with a buddy, Dale Jeffrey. Anyway, so... Um, yeah, but the return missionary was mine and, um, that's the return missionary.com. So that the returned, past tense, the returned missionary.com. I haven't really posted on there for a little while, but, um, and then, uh, I actually had another funny one called happy mormons.com. I love that. <laughs> so, um, back before when we could say that, um, anyways, so yeah. But uh, those are a couple of them. There was a lot of pages out there, and it was fun. We were I was a part of this kind of back channel group of a lot of, kind of LDS influencers, I guess you could call them. Um, people who have either a big Facebook page or following on social media or something. And we always did crazy campaigns and stuff together during Easter and Christmas, and it was fun. We we broke a world record once uh, with like the biggest live nativity or something like that you might have seen that with all the youtubers yeah that's ringing a bell yeah thank you for all you've done in that space and i have to think your expertise in that space will continue to help you um just having this foundation in social media and digital marketing and search engine optimization and and as you move forward in your life talk about um what just talk about your faith transition um, as for our listeners. Yeah, so um, I think uh, thanks for letting me share this. I um, it, it's it's basically uh, it's a it's a hard and complex story to share, which I think maybe anybody who's gone through a faith transition would say the same thing. But um, we uh, so I married Stacy. Uh, my wife, um, back in 2013, June, 2013. And, um, we, uh, it was, it was, uh, you know, we were, we were doing a lot of like online stuff, uh, using a lot of our skill sets to, to, we were running a business actually. And, um, she was doing great. I was doing great. We were just living, living the dream, you know, and running a business from home and, um, just making more money than we ever had after having come home from this like worldwide uh, travel thing we did. We went to Jerusalem on our honeymoon and cool. Jordan and Rome and all these cool places and Paris. And it was amazing. And, um, and then came home and, um, you know, she started to kind of experience some, some bouts of depression. And we didn't really know what that even was too big, uh, too, too much back then. Um, we weren't really, super familiar with mental illness and um but she just started feeling like super depressed and she didn't know why and didn't really know any ex- explanation for it and um i mean some things were happening that were really really hard for her um her, her uncle had recently um took his own life uh unfortunately um but uh but and I think that had an impact on her too, but I think genetically she was predisposed, uh, which we weren't super duper like aware of um, because um, 
just because um, you don't really talk about that stuff sometimes, you know, and, and older generations also don't really, you know, even if they have something, they don't necessarily talk openly about it. Um, so we, we, uh, we didn't really see it coming, but um, kind of a longer story short, she, uh, she, it, it kind of, these depressions turned into, um, kind of led to her trying all kinds of things. And we were trying everything. I mean, well, we didn't try everything, but we, we went on road trips. We would, you know, uh, do all these types of things to try to like boost our mood and, and all this stuff. But then, um, and she even tried the, to go to this one conference, um, that was supposed to be really helpful. And, um, it wasn't a church conference. It was just this kind of self-help type of thing. And, um, probably wasn't the best one for her to go to based on what she was about to experience. But during the conference, she had this, um, she, she, uh, experienced what's called psychosis and basically where your, your brain kind of like loses touch with reality a little bit, you know, and it starts to kind of distort things a little and, um, it's things you believe or, or think are, are kind of there, but they get attached to their own meanings and starts to get a little confusing. And so, um, she experienced that there and, um, and I like to often share that it's, uh, it's kind of like, um, if you've ever seen the movie, a beautiful mind with the story of John Nash and how he, uh, he, uh, you know, kind of having some delusions and stuff. And that's, that's basically what was happening to Stacy was, um, she was having a lot of these delusions and some people have delusions about, um, being, uh, you know, the star MVP in the NBA or like, you know, winning, uh, winning the gold medal in the Olympics or some people have really scary ones like about aliens or CIA and stuff like that. And usually it's, uh, something to do with your, what you kind of idealize and believe, um, very deeply. And so for Stacy being this really spiritual, religious person, she had a lot of spiritual and religious um, delusions kind of come up. And that was really hard um, for her. Uh, once she came out of the psychosis, she, was, she came back really, I feel like this was miraculous. She made it back when, while going through psychosis, she, was, she went on two flights and came home and made it back safely, you know, I'm so thankful for that. And, um, I didn't really know what was going on. And, um, long story short, finally decided to, after talking to one of my professors at BYU who talked about, you know, abnormal psychology and stuff, um, he said, you should probably take her to the hospital, you know, and I didn't even know they had places at the hospital for, for this. And so I was like, okay. Um, so so she was hospitalized for nine days. And in uh, towards the end of it, she started to kind of come back. And she was realizing, oh, yeah, this is like I'm, I don't know what's going on right now, but this is weird, you know, and I don't think this is, I don't think I'm seeing things right. And, you know, and, and but she was starting to remember everything. And um, I mean, she was still Stacy, you know. Um, just loving and kind and musical. I mean, she even played the piano in the hospital and she was singing and stuff, you know? And so 
um, she's just, you know, she's an amazing person. Um, and so that also kind of comes out during psychosis, which is kind of funny. Um, but, uh, but also, you know, things like, um, she really wanted to, uh, when she was in the delusion, she really wanted to, uh, uh, you know, get a divorce so that she could marry Jesus. And I, and I always said, Hey, that's hard to compete. You know, I, um, I, I can't really compete with that, <laughs> but, uh, let's go ahead and wait on that one, you Good. know, and, uh, let's, uh, let's, let's wait. And so she said, okay, let's, we'll wait. And, and, you know, things like that, I think are a little bit hard to listen to when, when most of the time you deal with people who are very well, you know, mentally. And, and I, and Stacy is most of the time very well, you know, other than that one occurrence, she's well mentally. But I think sometimes um, people who have uh, an experience with psychosis um, or some other people have schizophrenia, um, other people have other things too. And it's scary. It's scary for the people who go through it. Um, and it's hard to talk about. I think it's hard to talk about yeah. in, in the church. Um, it's already talk can be hard to talk about um, in the church with uh, people with, with just depression and anxiety. Um, but when you, when you start bringing in these kind of a little bit more scary concepts where your, your reality is kind of being questioned a little bit more with psychosis, that's when it's, it's even harder. Um, and so, so it's been really hard for Stacy um, to know how to talk about it and share her story, you know, of like, this is what I experienced. And even the doctor said, Hey, you know, be, be careful with spirituality. Um, you might want to avoid it for a little while um, to just stay stable. Um, so church and temple and spiritual discussions, reading scriptures, praying, could that all trigger psychosis? Well, um, there's a, I guess it, it, it's not necessarily certain that it could, um, but because a lot of the topics of the delusion that she specifically had, because not everybody has the same delusion, right? Um, could, could potentially lead to that if she's not well in other ways. And so we've, we've, we've also discovered a lot of things about psychology and, and psychiatry, you know, in the brain and, you know, nutrition is a part of it. Sleep's a part of it. Um, you know, stress is a big part of it. Genetics is a part of it. So some things you can't necessarily avoid um, it, it from happening, but there are a lot of things you actually do have under your control. Um, but I almost saw these spiritual topics as kind of um, almost like a fuel to the fire, if that makes sense. And so, cause we believe in hearing voices and, you know, like in the LDS doctrine, hearing voices and, and even like the, the most elect or, you know, spiritual or, or I guess, um, righteous can even see God, you know, and, and kind of see, um, the savior and that that's almost seen as something that's just ultra special and ultra, um, sacred. Um, and that I think we almost really hope for I mean we do and so when she believed this she actually did see Jesus talk to him but it was not Jesus it was some 
random person, um, and even hear the voice of God and, um, you know, and it wasn't the voice of God. Like, it's really hard to just go back to idealizing those things as, as goals. Um, when it's scary to try, try to figure out, okay, so how will I actually know that it is God when, mm-hmm. it, when it does happen? Mm-hmm. So it's been really complex to try to pick that apart. So complex sometimes that we've just sometimes just kind of thrown in the towel. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I don't know if going after those types of things in this life are maybe the right thing for, for Stacy. Because it seems like priority one is her mental health. Absolutely. Yeah. And then you've got to navigate spiritual discussions, spiritual experiences, conversations around that. And this is obviously yeah. something you've never had an owner's manual to do. And I'm no. not sure there's anybody yeah. that, unless that you could reach out to say, well, this is how I'm managing it in my marriage. And this is how yeah. it works. This is just all, you know, uncharted territory. And yeah. you're probably really alone. You feel so much alone. In yeah. processing all this. It can feel very lonely. And gosh, if you've gone through this, I just, I feel for you. Um, I know very few people who've actually reached out to me um, who have gone through a very similar experience Good. who are members of the church even. Um, and it's not simple, but, uh, but, but that, that was kind of our experience. Spirituality almost became like uh, fireworks for a shell-shocked soldier, you know, who used to love him. You just, you just want to, as a kid, you just, let's go see fireworks, you know, and then you go to war and you come back and you're like, I would be fine if the rest of my life I never saw a fireworks show again, you know, until you kind of maybe even treat that trauma a little bit, which we've definitely worked a lot on. Um, but because of, because of this thing happening to us, we didn't choose it. She didn't choose it. I mean, it's the best, amazing person, one of the best people I've ever met in my whole life, you know? righteous, wonderful, pure, beautiful person who just only desires the best for everybody and is just trying to make a difference in the world, you know? And she didn't choose. She didn't choose confusion. And I think, you know, it's happened to you. If if you have a faith transition, if you have something that happens to you, like, you maybe didn't choose that, right? Like, and, but... But it's, it's, I think, really important, even if you didn't choose it, to figure out how to deal with it, figure out how to, how to build a good life, regardless, you know? Talk with our listeners while this, why this experience for you generated a faith crisis. Yeah, so um, I'm a very empathetic person, um, and I'm also very, very... Um, loving, uh, caring of, of my, my wife and very close to, to Stacy. We're, we were everything to each other. You know, we, we got married and, um, I, I had actually been married before, um, and she had two. And so we really prized our marriage. We, we took a, a good amount of 
thinking about getting married before we got married because we knew, you know, that, Hey, this is a big deal. Like, should we do this? You know? And, um, and so for me, I think, you know, feeling so close to Stacy, um, and then seeing her go through this and just, why would, you know, why would there be this thing that happened to somebody who's so good? I mean, I, I, I look at myself, right. And I'd be like, well, yeah, I can see it happening to me. Cause like, I'm a total sinner. Like I'm or not, you know, total sinner, but like, I'm like, not, you know, this amazing person, you know, I'm probably getting like, I don't know, like a C plus in, in sainthood or whatever. I don't know. Maybe a D minus. Huh? <laughs> I doubt that. But, but like, you know, I, but she was like the most innocent, amazing, just wouldn't, you know, wouldn't hurt a fly. Like just, constantly trying to do good for other people and like happened to her, you know? And I thought, why would God allow somebody's idea of God to be so confused that it became traumatic inside their minds? Is it that those people are um, just not able to access God in this life? And if that's the case, like, are they just given kind of like a free ticket to the celestial kingdom, you know? Um, and so that was kind of one of my questions is like, well, are they kind of, you know, just like, like there are other allowances, I think, with people who have other kind of disabilities and things, or mental disabilities, where, you know, there are, I think, even policies um, that talk about how, you know, they don't even need to be baptized. And so I just wondered if like, okay, so does that mean that like somebody who goes through this later in life, do they get that too? Because it's so traumatic. Um, anyway, so I, it just, uh, I, you know, and I, studying psychology, uh, you know, at BYU, we talked about complex stuff that kind of didn't make sense with some of the things that we believe in. For me, before I was, and, and I'd, I'd watched documentaries, I'd read things, you know, and I'd, I'd had kind of a, a exploration before too of kind of things that made me question, but I never really like approached them because I thought, well, it doesn't really apply to me. Like it doesn't affect my day to day. I'm eventually, I'll probably figure it out, even if it's after I die, you know? It's okay. And that it, that was, for me, a better way to live, you know, at that time. But then when this happened, it introduced so much nuance to me that I didn't really know how to deal with the day to day to where I just, and, and it even had an impact on me personally. I started having anxiety and panic attacks because I honest. didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to help. I didn't know how to talk about it. I didn't know how to feel like I actually really belonged at church too. Why? I, Why did church become harder? It's harder for Stacy because it could trigger. It's like yeah, kindling. I like your visuals of fire. That yeah, yeah. It, you don't want to start this fire up again, so you're protecting. But why would it be talk about why it's triggering for you, or is it because it's triggering for Stacy? Partially that, um, because I just thought. Shouldn't it be okay for everybody? And also, like, I wanted to be, like, 
kind of that, you know, idyllic view of like the married couple in church, you know, who are just like, you know, married in the temple and, you know, because we got married in the temple and who are just like living, you know, enduring to the end or whatever, you know, and just kind of living the LDS life. And um, I think when I saw that, like, that wasn't going to be as simple as I thought it was supposed to be, I kind of became almost like angry at God um, because I didn't really know what he expected of me, like truly. And I didn't really know what I could expect from, from God. Truly honest. That was just kind of what I felt. And so, so it kind of led me down to a lot of the questions that I had like closed the door on before. Cause I was like, yeah, it's not a big deal. Kind of just opened back up a little bit. And then even more questions came. And, and then I tried seeking for people who, who got it. Cause when you, when you, this is the other thing is like, when you try to talk about it at church, um, sometimes it's, it's definitely possible. Um, I've, I've had great experiences, especially with some, like, I feel like we've got the jackpot with bishops. Like there've been amazing bishops. <laughs> um, but I also think that, um, it can be, it can be really uncomfortable to talk about some of these things at church. And so I, I sought for other places to, to try to open up, you know, Facebook groups, um, listening to podcasts, even on Instagram. And, and there's, there's, there's a, there's a good amount of those. Um, but there weren't a ton of them that weren't like just super bitter. <laughs> there's a lot of people who just struggle and they're just so bitter about it. And they're really not like super happy. Um, and I was, and, and I understand that, but like, I was looking for, I was looking for a place to find people who were one, not like trying to like find an excuse to leave the church. Not that like I hold that against anybody. Like I, I do not judge. Like I am totally loving and accepting of everybody in their journey, wherever they are, you know? Um, but I think as I was trying to seek for other like companionship where I could belong, um, I, I was also exposed to other questioning ideas too. And, and, and so it was kind of a, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've kind of probably experienced a little bit of that as you've interviewed more people and heard more stories um, that you never necessarily would have heard of before. Right. Um, so you kind of go down that path and, um, and for a while I was just almost obsessed with it. I just was almost obsessed with like trying to figure every little thing out, you know, answering every little question or going down every little path. I just couldn't, I couldn't let it go. And there was one day when, when Stacy and I were living in Huntington beach where she looked over at me and, and we were having this discussion about one of the issues or something. And she just looked at me and said, you know, for somebody who studies the science of happiness, you don't seem like you're very happy right now. <laughs> And I, that really impacted me, you know, um, I was like, you know, you're right. Um, and so I started thinking about it and thinking, I just really want to find a way to, to go through this in a better way and build a good life 
Like, even if I never find out the answers, even if I never figure it out, even if I don't know how to really feel comfortable at church or um, feel comfortable, like, doing all the things I used to do really comfortably. And, like, I was really good at Like, I was an amazing Sunday school teacher or elders quorum president or whatever, and I just loved it, and I was in it, and I was fully that, you know? And I think it's just, it, it's different now. And so I, I've had to grieve that a little bit. And I'm still kind of hopeful. I, I, I've told you this, but I, you know, I'm kind of, um, I kind of describe myself as both. Both a, a believer and a doubter. You know, fully, it's like, I can't, I can't get rid of my identity that I had. I, I loved my mission. It was an amazing experience. I mean, just so cool, you know, such a beautiful rite of passage for a young man and or a young woman, you know, like to to go through. And I know it's not like not everybody has an amazing experience on their mission, but like my mission was just life changing. I mean, the only other thing I can compare it to is when I studied um, at the Jerusalem Center, at BYU Jerusalem Center. I mean, it was just amazing. Right. And I'm never going to say that, say that it wasn't amazing because of a doubt or a question like it was, or, you know, there, there have been miracles that have happened to me that are like, I can't deny those things, even though I don't know how to explain a lot of stuff right now. And so for me, I think I've really tried to focus on building a life worth living a really good life. And I think a lot of the focus before for me was like getting ready for heaven later. But now like I'm really trying to build heaven now. That's cool. Like you can, you start now, you know? And I think for somebody who's going through a faith crisis, so much pain, somebody who's going through a faith transition, like there's so much uncertainty and you got to fill your life with good stuff even when you're going through that. And so I think, um, I just, I believe in building heaven now. It's a great segment, Andy. It's pretty, it's honest, but it's so hope filled. And I love that you were honest with your anger at God, because here you are dealing with really complex stuff that you didn't do anything to cause. And it's just rocked your world. And now the whole church experience has significantly changed this this organization, this belief system that you've consecrated decades to, that's been the balm of Gilead, that's been your go-to place, that's been just all the very best verbs I can use to describe it, is flipped on you. Yeah. And you're even coming to terms that it may never be back the way it was, given these things that I've gone through, but I still want to find goodness in this. I still want to find goodness and happiness today. I don't, I'm not looking to the forward and wondering if it'll all be back to the way it was and just sort of accepting the reality of the situation. It's pretty thoughtful. Um, it, you're, it's interesting just your, your, your expertise from a professional perspective and your personal story all coming together kind of um, in the middle of this life experience. How do you know when a faith transition is? I've never asked this question before on a podcast. <laughs> um, how do you know when a faith transition is complete and when you're kind of in the new 
do you ever know that? Or do you, do you kind of know that since nothing new has happened and you feel you're in a steady state or is there always a worry that another domino is going to fall or another, sh- you only have two shoes, but a third <laughs> shoe is going to drop or something else? That's such a good question. Um, so Stacy and I actually just barely got back from an amazing trip. We went on a road trip. We can't really go on like other trips right now, but we can, you can drive, you know, and we drove to California and saw the Redwoods. Um, I had this lifelong dream to go and um, hug the tallest tree on earth. Cool. <laughs> and the, the tallest tree on earth. The, I've got a called, daughter that wants to go with you next time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. She, I highly recommend it. Um, and so we went on this, we went looking for this tree. Is the, the tree's name is Hyperion. And, and as we were going, you know, on this, on this hike, it was like, we, we had to get a permit to go, you know, and we, uh, there was a, there was a trail that, that, that was well-marked, but then to get to this tree, like there were no well-marked paths. Um, there, even though we saw a few other people kind of hiking up this little kind of non, the unknown trail, like there, there's, there wasn't really much guidance. Um, and we got like really wet and dirty. We had to cross a river. We hiked up a river and we didn't really know where we were going. I mean, we were just following breadcrumbs from National Geographic and it's kind of kept a secret because they don't want people to know where it is um, so that they don't vandalize it. And so I won't really share where it is either, but like it's, it was, it was rough. It was hard getting there. There were some paths that kind of led off that we thought were the right path. We went up them these kind of false positives, you know, we're like, ah, oh, that wasn't where it is. And so we had to come back to the river and get all wet again. And then finally, like, I remember we, um, we got there and we found it and it was unmistakable. It was the massive tree and matched the pictures that I saw and looked up and we touched the tree, 800 year old trees, 380 feet tall, taller than the Statue of Liberty, you know, wow. and just kind of hugged the tree. Lay, I just sat there laying up and looking up from the forest floor and thinking, this is beautiful. And I share that story because I think it's a lot like, just to kind of answer your question about faith transitions, do they ever end? You ever know, when do you know when you're through it? Um, I don't, I don't know if I, um, if, if there is a way to say that it's ended. But I think that hike to Hyperion really taught me a lot about faith transitions because it was almost like it's not marked path. There's a few people kind of wandering in and out, but it's not like there's this sign that says, here's where you go. And there's this book that's like, okay, it's, you know, fourth, fourth of a mile this way. And then you see this tree and then you go up and whatever. It's unmarked path, unmarked territory. Every faith transition is unique. If you're going through one right now, you know what I'm talking about. Yours is not the same as somebody else's. And, but I think that there's still a way to kind of get to your Hyperion where you have found a new way to connect. Um, It may not be the same way that you thought before, right? Like, but when I was looking up and touching that tree, I connected with 
God. I mean, I connected with something bigger than myself. I couldn't see the top. Wow. And I think regardless of where you are in your transition or your faith crisis or your journey, you need to find those things that help you to connect to something bigger than yourself. It may not be through Sunday school or come follow me or um, hymns or, or so, I, the, the, the things that you used to do before that, that were those things. Like for me before it was, it was those things. It was, you know, going to church. It was teaching a really good lesson. It was going to the temple and finding that quiet. It was um, having this amazing scripture study session. And it's different now. And now I find, I find the light and that connection through beautiful harmonies and music, through nature, through flow experiences. Like I just, I learned how to play the cello. And the other day I was just like playing the song and I just, it just, I was, I just, I felt connected and nothing else mattered. It was just, I wasn't worried about the answer to the questions. I wasn't worried about anything, figuring anything out. It was, I was just present in that moment playing the cello, you know? So it may look different from before. Um, and I don't know if you'll ever know, or like, I don't know if there's a way to say, yeah, you, you now you're through it. You're good. You know, like, you can't, like, you know, green light. Uh, but, but definitely as you go, seek for those things that connect you to the inner wisdom inside yourself. You have it in you. Whether you believe that that's the Holy Ghost or not, it's still there. You know, it's still there. You've got wisdom inside of you. And I think it's so important to do the things that help you to connect to that. And, you know, you're going to go through aspects of the transition for the rest of your life. It's kind of like grief from the death of somebody that you love. It's going to keep popping up forever as your, your whole life. But, you know, at some point you will, I think you'll need to get to the point of decision on a new you. Um, and you can create milestones or kind of, right, like mark your own trail uh, to help you symbolically transcend in your mind from the old you to the new you. So for me, I have chosen to kind of stand in the gray and to integrate both, right? To be kind of both. It's taken me a long time to get to the point of accepting that I'm, I'm not my old self and that there's no way back to the way it used to be. Um, I've, I've embraced the two sides of myself, the believer and the doubter. And this, I decided to accept that as the new me. It, I think it really helped me to know that I was in good company. Uh, one of my heroes, C.S. Lewis, had an immense faith crisis and transition and was extremely angry at God for quite some time after the death of, of his wife um, through the grief that he went through and the doubt, you know, that doubt, that doubt and question is a part of him just as much as mere Christianity and the Narnia series was a part of him, you know, and, and 
I really love what he says in Mere Christianity, actually. He says uh, basically that God is the great iconoclast or that God basically is the one who shatters our view of him into something better, right? He's the one who's doing that. So uh, I can't let go of the beauty and the real miracles that happened from before all of the trauma, but I also can't let go of the real facts of what happened and the impact of this on me and Stacy. And I've chosen to see uh, and believe in a new version of God that allows me to embrace all the pieces of me. I really love what Thomas McConkie talks about in um, his book, The Two Types of, of Transitions. He says that there's one which is trans, transcendence uh, with I think he says abandonment. And then the other one is transcendence with inclusion or, or integration, which I really, I love the way he, he says that. And a lot of people choose to abandon, right? Transcend or transition and then abandon and transition fully away from what they feel like is the pain. Uh, and, and when the pain is so loud or, or traumatic, I think that can be actually really more healthy for some people. Uh, it's, and it's, it is a hard choice, Right. Uh, but for me, it's a complex decision because abandoning this means almost denying all the good, the beauty and uh, the truth uh, <laughs> within myself from before when I was fully orthodox and living without any shadow of a doubt, right? Uh, now, there, now there are many real shadows of doubt and you know, I, I welcome them. I didn't used to welcome them, but now I accept them and I choose and I choose not to let them ruin the good life that I am now building with Stacy. So though we don't, we don't do some of the practices that, you know, I guess, quote unquote, normal members of the church do, we do include many things and treasure our Christian and our Latter-day Saint heritage very deeply. You know, on my podcast, I recently interviewed an author of a book I highly recommend called Life is in the Transitions is by Bruce Feiler. He gives some tools to help through transitions uh, that have been super helpful for me and, and some of my clients. Uh, for example, um, so here there, there's kind of six steps that, that he talks about that I, I, I like to talk about here, um, and, uh, or six or seven. So first is accepting the new you and, you know, which is it's really hard. It's been hard for me to do, to come to this point of accepting that I'm both, right. I'm both the, the, you know, the doubter and the believer at the same time, just like C.S. Lewis, right? Um, so that's kind of the first step. Until you can get to that point, it's it's really hard. And maybe not everybody's going to come to the point of being both like me, but accepting whatever that new self is, I think is huge in a, in a transition. Creating, the second thing is I would say is creating uh, some sort of ritual to help you symbolize the new you, whether that's, you know, climbing a mountain or like, you know, hugging the tallest tree on earth, like I just talked about, uh, walk through an arch, uh, get it. I mean, this may not go necessarily with like the standards of the church, but getting a tattoo. A lot of people have done that to 
kind of symbolize what's the new the new self that they are trying to embrace. Uh, going on a road trip, you know, coming back somebody different. Um, a lot of times after relationships, I know a lot of uh, women or, uh, who who cut or they dye their their hair in a relationship transition. Uh, adding something so that and then so th- these are just rituals that can kind of be symbols of what we um, what we've just gone through and kind of symbolizing this new self. I think something the next one I think is really powerful uh, has been so helpful for me, and I'll, I'll share some examples of of how I've done it for myself, which is adding something to yourself, like learning a new skill or creating something beautiful in your life. Uh, for me, I've, I've, I learned to play the cello. I, I decided I wanted to be a cellist, right? And I could say, you know, once you learned this new thing, it's now a part of you, right? It's, it's a positive part of, of, of yourself, of your identity. Uh, so whether that's, you know, learning a new instrument or um, painting a picture, doing something creative, uh, getting trained or educated in a pathway to move you toward your ideal life just something, adding something to your identity that is positive is so helpful through these transitions because you look back when you're going through this transition and if you abandon what used to be a huge part of your life, it's so hard because you, you don't, uh, what, what do you have to hold on to of yourself, right? If that was your whole identity. So adding new things to yourself, your identity is huge. Uh, the fourth thing is sharing uh, this new self with other people. So I think often people get stuck. Um, I've seen so many people who are just really, and I, I, I was here, I was here, uh, for a while. Um, but people get stuck in this sharing of the anger or the bitterness around why it's so hard, you know, um, it's, it's, it is hard. Uh, but what if we accept you know, the new self and add something beautiful to ourselves and share that side of ourselves with others. I think that can really be a powerful step in, in the transition process. So for example, for me, like adding this new skill set of cello, right? I'm a cellist and I'm having a recital. So I'm like sharing that part of myself with other people. Um, and, and, and it's, it's, it's beautiful. It's, it's great. So the fifth thing is crafting your new story. So how do you tell your new story of, of the new you to the people that you love? That's a huge skill set. I think that's so important for transitions. Uh, so for me, right, instead of focus on being against the things that I hate or against the things that brought me pain or angry about the things that are, um, you know, that, that made my life uh, hard, I focus now on the being for the things that I love, being for the things that add beauty and significance and meaning to my life. And then surrounding myself with people. So the last step I would say is surround yourself with people who cheer you on as this new self, as this new version of you. So that is, that's critical. So the six um, things, accepting the new you is the first, creating some sort of ritual to symbolize the new you is the second, adding something to yourself um, is the third, like creating some some new part of your identity. Uh, the fourth, sharing this new self with other people. Uh, and then fifth, crafting your new story. How do you tell your story? What's your new story? 
And then six, surround yourself with people who cheer you on as this new self. And these are the types of things that I help coach people through as they navigate this faith transition. I think they've been so helpful for so many and they, they they're so helpful for, for me, even now they continue to be helpful for me. So hopefully that's helpful for people as they try to, to build meaning in their life. In positive psychology, the study of meaning, um, there's four pillars of meaning. Uh, there's storytelling, there's purpose, uh, transcendence and belonging. And when you're going through a faith transition or crisis, you've, you've got to find those things. You may have found, you've, you may have depended fully on the church before for all of, for as much of those as, as, as all of them. And you may need to find those somewhere else and that's okay. It's okay to find those in other things too. Um, but you got to find them. You got to find them. Share those four pillars again. So uh, storytelling, which is like, what's the story you're telling yourself, right? Uh, is it a redemption story or is it, you know, a um, contamination story? Uh, the redemption story is, you know, so the contamination side would be, you know, I got a good life, but gosh, these questions are hard. And I don't know how to figure this out. The redemption story is kind of, I don't know how to figure this out, but gosh, I have a good life. You know, wow. different story. Um, uh, purpose, finding your purpose. You know, uh, there's a really cool book called the, the, the Happiness of Pursuit and how we all need to have a life-affirming quest. If you don't have a life-affirming quest, um, it can be really easy to 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 sink into a kind of situational depression. Um, and I think it's really powerful to have a purpose and a life-affirming quest. People who have found in studies that, you know, you can add up to seven years of life if you have a purpose. Um, my grandma lived till she was like 100 years old. And I mean, partially, mostly because of genetics, but I think also she had, she always was finding a purpose. Um, and, uh, and sometimes I think, Church-wise, that often happens for us without us doing anything because we get on these long back-to-back-to-back church callings that sort of drive that purpose without any proactive effort on our part. They're demanding callings. I don't want to minimize that, but it's often something we don't have to proactively do it. And then, but I've recognized that for some people, they that doesn't, isn't part of their story or, and so they've, I've wondered even if our own culture for it's, we've learned, we haven't learned the ability to go do that outside of formal callings that come our way. Absolutely. And as a missionary, you have a paragraph that you can memorize. It tells you exactly what your purpose is, right? My purpose is a missionary and you can fill in the blank right there. It's right in the first chapter of preach my gospel. And, but, uh, you know, as adults, as return missionaries, as empty nesters, as whatever, it doesn't matter what stage of life you're in. You gotta find that. You gotta have a purpose. Seek after it. It'll it'll make your life so good. I really love that, Andy. And I some of those show up on our LDS tooling tools callings, but Right. Yeah. My thing, my feeling is we need to develop self-worth, not necessarily around our church calling, but around what you're teaching is just core purpose. Absolutely. And church calling can be a means to core purpose, you know, but the core purpose is what is, you know, 
Yeah. And so I really like that. Yeah, because I mean, there's like an overarching purpose to life, right? That if you are you know, fully believing in the, the plan of salvation and everything and the doctrine, that's kind of this overarching kind of more greater lens. But like, what is your purpose? Like if Russell M. Nelson's purpose was to save the life of a prophet as a surgeon, right? Like, what's yours? What, or at least right now in this chapter of your life, like what's your, what's your life affirming quest? I think that's really important, especially when you're going through a faith transition and you're kind of losing sight of like a lot of stuff and trying to reconstruct what do you believe and even maybe parts of your identity. You got to, you know, it, it really can be super helpful to do that um, and find your your purpose again. Go um, through the last two. I think those, I got yeah, just sidetracked on number two. Oh, no, you're good. Yeah. So transcendence um, and... Like I said, you know, before I used to find that in scripture study in, and boy, was I a scriptorian. I mean, I still know them. Um, but, you know, whether that's temple attendance or whatever, all those things that you maybe before were just so, that's where you'd find the transcendence. Um, whether that's where you find it or not anymore, you need to find it. Like, Go touch the tallest tree on earth or, you know, you don't have to hike all the way to Hyperion, but you can, you can go to the Redwoods and drive through it. And if, if, if nothing else, you know, go to the ocean, go to do nature, anywhere in nature. I mean, you can find beautiful transcendence in so many things. Just contemplate space for a couple of minutes and galaxies. I mean, there's so many ways to connect. I, I love listening to complex harmonies and music just really connects me um, to something bigger than me and it's beautiful cool um, playing the cello anyways so find something that helps you to find that transcendence um, if it's not what you used to find or where you used to find it and then belonging belonging is so important um, and I think it can be really hard when before you used to feel that at church um, where you you belong and, and now you you still want it and so you try to fit in. And Brene Brown talks about the difference between like fitting in and belonging, right? And you really have to find somewhere where you can belong, which means that you can tell your whole self, be all of you and still feel loved and accepted and seen. And so if you don't feel that at church or within um, the social groups that were the religious social groups that you used to be a part of more commonly, you got to find it somewhere. And, um, and I would challenge you. I would challenge you to share it with people at church. Um, share it with your bishop. I mean, I know some people have had bad experiences, but I mean, I think, some, I think you might be surprised. What have your bishops, you've had good experience, you mentioned earlier. What yeah. have your bishops done if there's bishops or local leaders listening, saying, I want to do the right thing when someone like Andy opens up? What did they do? Mm. I mean, they they listen. Um, one of my bishops, just so awesome. Well, so I can tell a couple of stories, but one one, he said, you know, you do whatever you need to do. And I am with you. And um, you, 
whether whether you come to church some days and some days you don't, um, like you're good, like and I love you and I think you're amazing. Sometimes you may uh, need to go to church. Sometimes you may need to not go to church, and whatever it is that you need. And this is like when I was going through all these like panic attacks and stuff, and I'd get them at church sometimes. It was the worst. Um, and, uh, and my bishop was amazing. He just said, hey, I'm, I'm with you all the way, and no matter where you end up, I'm your friend. And, I, I, and I'd love to stay in touch. I loved that. That was beautiful. Um, I, and, and if I could maybe even, I guess, end with, with or, or I don't know how close we are, but with talking about that feeling of love and friendship. I mean, this is something that I want to I want to actually study more in depth. It's uh, um, friendship, you know. I want to do a, a doctoral study on on adult friendship because I think it's so important. I think it's actually the the vehicle of love. But I think love, if you can sit with somebody and love them for long enough, there's actually actually research that shows that you're gonna bend. And um, there's like political research, right, where people are on two different sides, and um, and they, you know, one sees one way, the other sees the other way, and um, but if you share with them enough, and if you love them enough, both of you will actually start to bend. Um, I mean, there's it's documented. It's it's fascinating. And I think love is so powerful in, and because I think faith crisis and faith transition isn't just a faith crisis. It's a social crisis, which I think is one of the hardest parts of it. Right. And so I think if you can, if you can just love people, like love the heck out of them, whether, no matter which end you're on, right. Like I've shared with my parents, um, a lot, you know, a lot of my faith transition stuff and they're, as orthodox as you can get, they're amazing people. And, um, and they are just so loving. And I've tried to be as so loving as I possibly can too. And that, that love, despite where we're a little bit in different places has been what's kept us together. And I really, really want to keep those relationships. And so I think if, you know, when you think about it, inside or outside of the church, love is just powerful. In the LDS church doctrine itself, I think love is the most powerful doctrine, you know, and and coming to that bending. And I think bending, you think about the atonement, like that is the ultimate act of bending, you know? And it, I mean, if you're, if, if you're, you know, looking at the LDS doctrine side of things. And I mean, God, the father bent to allow that to happen. Jesus bent to make that happen. And I think if we can love deep enough, hard enough, we will bend and the people, the relationships that we have, that we matter, that matter the most to us will also bend. And, and I think we'll be able to get through it. So hopefully that, kind of brings it together with belonging because I think you really need to feel that belonging. I love that um, belonging. And I've certainly in my own, some of this has reminded me of my own faith journey 
um, it's stabilized. You know, I haven't really changed much in a couple of years, but I've learned um, sweet spots for me and things that are less sweet, and I've learned how to manage that. Yeah. Um, church, I do feel some anxiety, even though I'm in an incredible ward, you know, on Saturdays, knowing that church is coming and just knowing some of the conversations I might hear mm. um, that kind of are hard on me. And I just know that might come and they're probably not hard on me, but since I have so many LGBTQ friends, I'm kind of hearing it through their ears and I just, yeah. um, I'm a temple worker and I've, that experience I really enjoy. And I've thought, well, why is church sometimes a little harder and the temple not hard? And I, I've, one of the things I've concluded, Andy, at least for me is I know everything I'm going to hear in the temple. <laughs> It's very right. scripted. I don't mm. have a lot of interaction with the other temple workers. And so there's nothing. So it's a, it's more of a balm of Gilead experience for me. Yeah. I've noticed I read the scriptures through different eyes. I don't read them anymore to kind of find the latest little bit of trivia, which is, which is helpful at times, but yeah. it's more, what is the scripture teaching me about how to serve others? Mm. Um, and so I've just recognized I've changed. Um, and sometimes I don't fit in as well because I'm processing things differently. That's not to mean I'm processing it better than my fellow Latter-day Saints. I'm just processing it differently and I don't quite fit in as much. Yeah. Um, and so I recognize that. And yeah. So I, that's a real thing you're talking about. Yeah. I love this idea of love just anymore because I just think that that is the doctor. I was looking for an Elder Uchtdorf quote <laughs> yeah, about his quote about love that just is the thing that binds us together. Mm -hmm. It heals wounds. Um, just teach us more about your thoughts on love. You know, one of the most powerful uh, exercises in positive psychology and in actually Buddhism, um, it's an ancient practice called loving kindness meditation. And um, maybe you've heard of it, but it's, it's uh, something where you picture somebody who you just, you really care for so much. It could even be an animal or a pet, uh, but it's somebody who you just care so deeply for. And then um, you, you hold a picture of that person in your mind and you just wish really good things upon them. There are four wishes um, in this tradition uh, that are just really powerful in there. May you be happy. And you actually, you picture this person like almost like a video in your mind of like, what is this person that I love so much? What, what is, you know, what does it look like for them to be happy? May, so may you be happy, may you be healthy. What does it look like for that person to be healthy? May you live with ease. What does it look like for that person to live with ease? May you be safe. What does it look like for that person to be safe? And as you, as you think of those things, you wish those good things upon that person, it actually changes the way you're, you, you, the person doesn't even have to know that you're doing that, but it changes your brain chemistry to where you, your whole body relaxes your brain actually works better. Um, everything, like your peripheral vision even improve, uh, increases. All these amazing things in the body happen. Um, and that's all because of love. So it's pretty cool to know that like, not just, it's not just spiritual, but it's 
it's it's psychological, um, it's scientific, you know, it's your health, um, uh, and it can improve heart health. I mean, there's all these amazing things that can happen from just doing this loving kindness meditation that people don't even know that you're doing um, and focusing on them. And the reason why I bring that up is because I think as you're going through this, it can be easy to feel like God has forgotten you. I know I felt that sometimes. Um, like it doesn't work anymore or something. Like it's like it's like heaven turned off the Wi-Fi or changed the Wi-Fi passwords. I don't know where like what the Wi-Fi password is anymore. I'm like, well, I don't even know how to connect. You know, and <laughs> it's honest. It's really honest. You know, sometimes it feels that way when you're going through it, and so you got to know how to love yourself. And um, so start by, you know, these, these types of practices of self-compassion. You, um, you can look up self-compassion meditations, really powerful, um, to just give yourself the benefit of the doubt in life, you know, um, loving-kindness meditation. And then instead of focusing on this other person after you've kind of wish these beautiful things upon them, May you be healthy. May you be happy. May you be safe. May you live with ease. What does it look like for you for those things? Wish those upon yourself. You got to love yourself first, you know, and, and I think that's when you can even feel God's love too, is when you accept and love yourself and acknowledge the pain that you're going through, acknowledge the difficulty and almost kind of give yourself a pat on the back and say, hey, you're doing okay. Um, and so I think that's really important for you to be able to love other people. If you can fill your own heart with love for yourself, if you can be your own best friend first, it's pretty amazing and magical almost what you can do to love other people. People who don't love themselves people who really, really almost loathe themselves inside um, are the ones who aren't very happy and are really struggling and, and are really bitter towards other people and hold a lot of resentment, um, especially going through a faith transition or faith crisis. Um, you know, whether they stay in the church or leave the church, like it, it's hard when it becomes a defining factor of who you are. Um, that you're bitter. And C.S. Lewis says something really interesting about this. Um, he says something around the uh, lines of, you know, if we, if we only live 70 years, then, you know, trying to work on, you know, feeling happiness and, and minding our temper really isn't too big of a deal. But if we live forever, it's a really big deal, you know, and trying to develop those things and trying to love ourselves and, and help ourselves to be happier. You know, what would it look like in a million years if we continued down the path of resentment and unforgiveness? That's basically the definition of hell. If we live forever, which that's what we believe, then a little blip in our little faith transition in this life you know, we got a long time to figure this out. And 
So start by loving yourself and giving yourself the benefit of the doubt in life <laughs> and give yourself credit for what you are going through because you may not get it from anybody else because it's so unique in a faith transition. But give it to yourself and because um, I believe that God would give it to you even if you can't feel that right now. Some really beautiful things you're sharing with us, Andy. I love what your bishop said. I thought that everybody could do the same thing because I think your bishop basically said, I trust you. And I, mm. I just trust you, yep. Andy, and I, I love you and I trust you and you're going to know how best to navigate this and I'm giving you a pretty wide latitude to do that the best way you can. And I think that's what heavenly parents are doing for us right now in mortality. So I hope if I were your friend, your parent, a bishop, a spouse, a child, that I would respond in the same way. Because I think what your bishop did is what we all should do in a situation like that. Because I think I've just learned to give everybody the benefit of doubt. They're doing the very best they can with the situation that they face. And I love your th also your thoughts on self-compassion. Somebody said, when you're a wounded person, you wound others. Yeah. And I think we need to love ourselves. And that is something that's maybe back to square one is to just, and I do believe that our worth is set um, as children of heavenly parents. And so even if we're in the middle of the worst financial crisis or the worst sin crisis or whatever category of crisis, your category is really complex mental health issues with your wife that you love and still love and are deeply committed to, but it's really crazy and really there's no elders quorum you ever taught or <laughs> attended that said, this is okay, elders. This is what happens when yeah. um, something like this happens. So I just think that, you know, we just have to, you know, love ourselves and be very kind to ourselves. Sometimes in our Puritan LDS culture or just culture, we're, we're kind of stiff over lip and I don't think we inherently think we deserve to love ourselves because we look in the mirror and see all our faults and see imperfection. But I, yeah, I just believe heavenly parents love us unconditionally. Nothing we can do can take them out us outside the circle of their love. And so we ought to do the same thing for us. Yeah. Um, nothing we can do should take us outside of our love for ourselves. Yeah. I, I fully agree with that. 100%. And I think of all the positive emotions of happiness, you know, joy, gratitude, pride, healthy pride, you know, uh, inspiration, serenity, amusement. I think love is kind of the mother of all positive emotion. And um, you're going to do yourself a favor if you can feel that for yourself. And, um, You'll, you'll find it in abundance for others when you find it for yourself first. And so, yeah, I just, I, and, and I really think that friendship too, I think friendship is really the vehicle of love. So like I said, be your own best friend first, but love other people through friendship too. Uh, we've got about five, 10 more minutes. Um, I, may have, I did find Elder Uchtdorf's quote, so I'm going to read it. 
um, just following up exactly what you're teaching, Andy, because love is the great commandment. It ought to be at the center of all and everything we do in our own family, in our church callings, in our livelihood. Love is the healing bond that repairs rift in personal and family relationships. It is the bond that unites families, communities, and nations. Love is the power that initiates friendship, tolerance, civility, and respect. It is the source that overcomes divisiveness and hate. Love is the fire that warms our lives with unparalleled joy and divine hope. Love should be our walk and talk. And I just, I, I've worried a little bit culturally that there's this imbalance where we talk more about obedience than love. Mm. And I, I believe in obedience. I want my listeners to know that I'm a, a fan of obedience <laughs> Yeah, because we get blessings from obedient, but I've almost worried that we've, at the expense of talking about obedience, we haven't talked enough about love and that we're all a little wounded and the atonement of Jesus Christ can heal our woundedness. And love is a big part of that. And the belonging we can feel with others and the true friendships you're talking about. Then I'm going to read another quote here um, by Henry Norwin, a Catholic priest. And all these quotes are in this book I wrote that I've referenced in the podcast. Over the last few years, I've become increasingly aware that true healing mostly takes place through the sharing of weakness. Mostly we're afraid of our weakness and we hide them at all costs and thus make them unavailable to others, but often to ourselves. And in this way, we end up living double lives against our own desires, one life in which we present ourselves to the world, to ourselves, and to God as a person who is in control, and another life when we feel insecure, doubtful, confused, anxious, and totally out of control. And maybe you felt that at church, and that's why church became hard. Yeah. The split between these two lives can cause a lot of the suffering. I've become increasingly aware of the importance of overcoming the great chasm between these two lives. It is amazing in my own life that true friendship, this is just what you're teaching, Andy. It is amazing in my life that true friendship and community becomes possible to the degree I am able to share my weaknesses with others. And I would even use a different word, weaknesses, just the realities of our life. Because um, your situation isn't a weakness, Andy. Um, now I'm back to this quote again. Often I become aware in the fact that sharing of, of my weaknesses with others, the real depth of my human brokenness and weakness and sinful start to reveal themselves to me, not as a source of despair, but as a source of hope. As long as I try to convince myself or others of my in independence, a lot of my energy is invested in building up my own false self. But once I am able to truly confess my de profound dependence on God and others, I can come in touch with my true self and real community can develop. Hmm. So anyway, any thoughts? I'll just keep sharing. And we've got one more time for one more segment. Yeah. Just share with us, you know, a final segment or two. Thank you. Yeah, I think that's really powerful developing community I think is so powerful and I think we really need that in that in that sense of of belonging that we crave um I think one of the hardest parts about it and, and I, I read about why this happens um in this book that's called The Righteous Mind it's by Jonathan Haidt and he talks about why it's so hard to to open up like you he talks about in that quote sharing our true selves with friends, right? And, and, and when you do that, you feel that belonging. And that belonging is critical. It's so important for us. 
but at church, I think, like you kind of mentioned, is you know there's almost like a a bit of a puritanical culture that's kind of bled over across generations for whatever reason. Um, it's not even doctrinal; it's just funky. You know, it's just kind of funny how it happens. But one of the one of the reasons why it happens is, um, you know, Jonathan Haidt is this researcher who talks about you know why we why we disagree so so you know difficultly i guess you could say with people uh of another political standing or religious belief and why it's so hard to feel comfortable with these people um even though if you were to follow them around as an invisible fly on their wall you would see that they are really good people in their life even if they have different beliefs and a big reason why it's so hard to share with people who maybe feel like are different in their beliefs or you feel are different in their beliefs is because when, I mean, he, he, this is his theory is that we, we didn't really evolve uh, as individuals. We evolved in groups. And so social groups were critical for our survival. And uh, you know, so anything that could help us to keep that group intact would be really, really important, which includes social structure, which includes belief systems, which includes, um, you know, mimetics, which is another kind of term that um, kind of a, a ideology that's passed along, just like genetics are passed on mimetics are kind of passed on ideas. And so when we bring out this idea that's potentially threatening to our church structure, right? To, to what we might believe is holding our, our group, our safe group together as a ward or a church. Even if we don't consciously recognize that it's happening, subconsciously we might see that person who's introducing this, this ideological threat as a threat. And we instantly ostracize them in our, in our minds, subconsciously even sometimes. And so, and I, maybe I'm just sharing this for the leaders, you know, of, of, of the wards or the church, um, to know that that's, you know, that's something that's almost built into our DNA. And I know some people maybe aren't as um, friendly with the idea of like evolutionary theory, but, you know, if, if you read about it, you know, we evolved in groups and we survived as groups and, being a part of a church group, you know, feels really safe. It feels really safe. And especially um, older generations, just if you start to feel like um, there's a threat to the underpinning of your, your social safety group, right? Even though you're, you're going to survive, you know, you're going to not like get attacked by a saber-toothed tiger or some, you know, thing off in the wilderness, like you still have that wiring in your, in your brain that, that makes you feel threatened. And so if we can just remember, like we're talking about love then we can overcome those, those fears and those threat responses that, that are real, we all, we're humans, you know, we have threat responses and it's okay as a member of the church who's not having a faith crisis to feel afraid. It's okay. Like just feel your feelings, you know, and 
if somebody who is having a questions or whatever brings something up in class or on an email now because a lot of churches over email and zoom sometimes these days um you know it's okay if you feel a little bit threatened or afraid um but maybe pause for a second before you think about you know trying to correct that or change the way they think or something and and you know think about the scripture that says perfect love casteth out all fear because it is scary right that's a fear response it's a threat response we have fear it's it's evolutionary whatever you want to call it like neurological and we're afraid of our social group being threatened but remember perfect love casteth out all fear like you can overcome fear and that threat response by just remembering you know they're human just like i'm human and i and like i can love them and maybe they have a different idea but it's maybe because they've just gone through something really difficult and so i don't know if that will help um somebody who's on the other end of of this who's just trying to understand and think why does this happen why why is it so hard at church to talk about stuff like this why is it why is it that people who are going through these things don't bring it up because they perceive that they will generate a threat response in people in their safety group you know in their minds so um but i think love once again you know is the answer so i think that we can focus on love and and uh, and i i i just i just want to maybe um i don't know i just i just want people to know that there is a way to build a good life um regardless of uncertainty um i remember i was in i was in a hotel room in the middle of the night in singapore on this like business trip um couple years ago when i was just struggling i was just not i didn't know what to do and i woke up and i wrote this poem that i called a new heaven and um for us it's been really hard to to really you know bank on this like heaven someday kind of an idea and like really connecting with the spirit and trying to seek out voices and hearing revelations cuz it's so hard for somebody who's gone through psychosis it's just the reality it's hard and so i thought what would heaven look like if we just built it now and i wrote a poem about it and i don't have it memorized or anything and i don't i don't even know if i have it here but it was just about building a good life now and um you know i maybe i want to share this quote really quickly from um the founder of positive psychology i love positive psychology it's the science and study of human happiness what makes humans thrive how can you build a good life right um how could you build heaven now in this life today um and he says this he says positive psychology takes seriously the bright hope that if you find yourself stuck in the parking lot of life with few and only ephemeral pleasures without minimal grat- with minimal gratifications and without meaning there's a road out this road takes you through the countryside of pleasure and gratification 
up into the high country of strength and virtue, and finally to the peaks of lasting fulfillment, meaning, and purpose. And I just love that quote because it's just, you, you can, I think there are maybe people who are going through a faith crisis or transition who they, because they're, the church was everything for them, um, the way that they, even, even just the way that they saw it, if they don't end up leaving the church, every, they, it used to be their whole life, their whole identity, their whole everything. And, and they think if I don't have that anymore, if I can't rebuild the exact same way that I had it built before, before it got toppled, before the dominoes crashed or whatever, I don't know what I am. I don't know where I can go. I'm like he says, stuck in the parking lot of life. And there, there is a way out. There's a way out. And you, you can build a good life, even if you don't rebuild it the way that it used to be. And I can show you how to do that with positive psychology and the, the principles of, of human happiness and the science of well-being. Um, and, I can all, and, and you can just go, I mean, go start digging into the books. There's tons of TED Talks and books out there already. Um, but you know, it's, it's okay to build a beautiful and amazing life without knowing with, and, and just living in the uncertainty. And like I told you, like, I'm kind of both. I'm a believer and a doubter. And I'm kind of just in the, like, and, and that's funny because the scripture says, you know, if you're lukewarm, then like, I'll spew thee out or whatever. And I'm like, well, I've probably already got spewed out, but I, you know, I believe that there is a way to build a good life. And I see millions of other people out there, hundreds of millions of people who are happy and who don't necessarily worry about all these things every single day. They have their own worries and you're always going to have something, you know, to worry about. And it's going to be a a struggle. There's obstacles always, but the hope, um, at least as defined in positive psychology is like, knowing that you can have a better future and knowing that you, that you have the power to make that. So also understanding that there are multiple pathways to that future and that all those pathways come with obstacles. That's true hope, at least in positive psychology definition, but you got to have that hope. And there's definitely a way out of the parking lot of life. And if you're thinking that you don't really have hope and that you can't rebuild the future and that you're just stuck because you don't know how to solve the questions that you have, build a good life, build heaven now, you know, and maybe you'll figure it out someday. But if you don't, then at least you had a good life while you were here. Remind people how they can connect with you and and some may want to have you help them as as their coach or as their whatever the right vocabulary is. Tell our listeners how to contact you again, Andy. Yeah, so you can find me at morehappylife.co. That's my website. And then um, you can also, if you're on Instagram, it's just more happy life. You can listen to my podcast that's also called More Happy Life. Uh, and, um, and yeah, those are all 
places you can find me and connect with me. Um, I have a lot of free resources if people want to just, you know, take a course for free that helps you boost your positive emotion or learn about positive psychology. The podcast is obviously free forever. Um, and, um, but I, if, if you're, if you're needing an extra hand, which I've needed a lot, you know, I've, I've loved having therapists and coaches, um, as guides along that, that trail towards the big tree, you know, you sometimes need somebody to help you point you in the right direction and encourage you and keep you accountable to love yourself and, um, move into the life that you really do want. Um, and I'd be honored to, to help people, um, in, in, in a limited way. I don't have a ton of space, but I'd love to help if I can. This has just been a great podcast, Andy. Um, one of the very best ones we've done. I just love your brother. So much respect for you and your honesty, your vulnerability, your integrity. You know, your life is very different right now than it, you hoped it would be. <laughs> um, but I think it's a great life. And I love this term you keep coming back to, good life, regardless of the uncertainty. And to really enjoy right now, I'm reflecting on my mission mother in England, Katie Ivory, Sister Ivory, throwing out candy in the middle of a zone conference. <laughs> and she just said, you have to enjoy today. You have to enjoy the moment. You can't just live for, oh, once life starts, once I'll be done with my mission or married or done with college or financially sound. And that's really what you're teaching is build the good life now. Build heaven now. I love the way you take the word heaven, which is something in the future, and say, let's bring that in today Yeah. with uncertainty, with difficulty. I love your love of your wife. We talked about her before we went live, and you've talked about her during the podcast. And Stacy, if you're listening, you know, I can tell you've got a husband that loves you and loves being around you and loves everything about you. And, and your journey is unique. And I'm kind of speaking to everybody with mental illness, but I think you're some of our heroes and the things that you walk and the things that people around you learn make us all better. And this is a thriving marriage with complexity and it gives us hope for all marriages. So Andy Proctor, on behalf of all of our listeners, I'm just deeply touched. You have a life mission ahead of you. You're a pretty young guy in your early thirties, maybe mid thirties at the most. And you're going to be helping a lot of people going forward that need a lot of the things that you understand firsthand and you're learning and you're continuing to learn as you want to pursue a PhD. So keep following your dreams because you're a healer. And thank you, our listeners, for joining us, for joining Andy and I on another episode of Listen, Learn, and Love. Mm-hmm.